Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network. The podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and the show's producer, Nate Piver. What's up? Nate, good to see you. Good to be back. I am thrilled to be back. Can't wait to uh, see what we're talking about today. Dude, I'm genuinely excited to dive into Abraham a little bit more about what's going on. And if I can deliver half as much as what I've been soaking in this week, I mean, it's going to be, it's fun. All right. I love Abraham. Let's do it. Okay, let's start first. And you have to forgive me. I'm going to be bouncing. I, I know in the Come Follow Me discussion, they've got like this delineation. Chapter 18 is the next lesson. But so much of this story with Abraham interweaves with all of these chapters, and there's so much play going on. I'm going to be going back and forth to some of the previous ones and, and just taking some free reign here to really dive into Abraham. We just want to get it right. We want to get it right. And so first, the question I am going to ask is, what does it mean to walk with the Lord? Mm. And we've seen that phrase a few times this year. First, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. Then we had Noah walked with God. Well, Enoch before Noah. And Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. And now Abraham is commanded to walk with God. Let me ask a question. Ask away. Did Abraham walk with God or before God? In the wording. Before. In the wording. Lifne, before. Is that important? Because I, I might have some thoughts on that, but continue. Oh, tell me what 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 do you think? What what? And, and again, like I'm worried that I'm so far off on this, but but what it. do you what if if you were to read the difference between walks with God or walks before God? Why would those be separate? That's a good question. So uh, Enoch was with God, correct? Yes, and so was Noah. Let's uh, let's pull up those verses. So if we go to Genesis 5, you're absolutely right. There is a difference. And here we are, verse 22. And Enoch walked with God. The verb with is et, meaning with. If I pull it up, with, near, together, with, together. And, and maybe that's where you're headed with this. Yes. Go for it, Nate. No, I, I'm, I'm too scared, dude. I'm no, too don't, scared. Don't be scared. Okay, let me... Let me I want to maybe I can just spur maybe I can just spur some thoughts for you because again like you knowing the language better I and the only reason I bring this up is because I was remembering that it talked about Noah being like the righteous dude relative to his generation like but like but he was what he was. I think the word was he was righteous, right? Uh-huh. You don't see that necessarily a ton throughout the Old Testament, at least from the cross checking that I can do. But I, again, I might be wrong on this. But we we talked about this a little bit that after the after the flood, um, Noah, and and again, like there's so much of this that's always lost in translation. That again, I, this is why I'm kind of nervous to talk about this. And just correct me if I'm wrong, and I will not be offended. But but Noah, we talked a lot about like the trauma that Noah must have gone through, right? You you basically, and and again, like as kind of horrifying of a picture as it paints, I'm going, man. Do you hear like 
corpses bumping up against the ark as you're floating around and the whole earth and all of the animals and all the people have been drowned. And like, how do you, even when you land and start again, recover from this, right? And, um, apparently with the vineyard, that's what I, okay. And that's where I'm, that's what, that's kind of where I'm going with this, right? Is that it's, is, is that kind of a clue into, how how crazy that probably was even for a prophet to go, we have to start this over again, knowing every day you get up that it's like you never know what you're going to stumble upon. <laughs> I don't know, like it's, as you're walking around. Point. I don't think we normally think about that. I don't think, think we think aftermath. about that. But the aftermath of that is important because, again, like at least as far as the story goes, he's he has become a man of the vineyard. And he's passed out wherever that is. He's he's a he's and it, it just paints a little bit of like a, oh man, that's intense, right? And you look then you and and by the way, like I would not judge him for for doing whatever it took probably to kind of calm whatever terrible emotional trauma that must have been, right? Mm-hmm. You look at Abraham. We've kind of talked about this, and I know we're going to get more into this today too, and that's why, and that's why maybe we can we can finish talking about this later. But think of the think of the trauma that Abraham and Isaac and Sarah all went through, even throughout their whole lives, basically. Uh, and we can add Ishmael and Hagar into Thank the you. mix. And by the way, I think that a lot of that probably played a toll on Abraham also everything that we're going to talk about that goes down with them. But the, I guess the difference it feels like is at the end of that, does Abraham turn to the vineyard or does Abraham stand back up, dust off his boots and keep going, right? And and realize that this is, that with all of the tragedy and all of the trauma that he's going to see in his life, he, at least in the scriptures, gets back up right mm-hmm. and and keeps pushing forward and so i'm wondering if the if the language of walks with god or walks before god has anything to do with walking with god for him to basically be be um kind of like pulling you along or kind of taking you along with him to, to with god to kind of help walk you through a lot of the tragedy that basically and and the insanity that you're about to see or have seen where with Abraham he on his own understands his calling and is walking walking with the faith that God is supporting him even if he's not holding his hand through a lot of these things Am I totally off on this? It's interesting perspective. I, I honestly, I, I don't know. I, I look at it. Adam walking with God makes sense if God's physically present with him in the garden. And by the way, teaching him and holding his hand through a lot of the things that have he has to learn, right? Absolutely. And if Enoch is pulled up into heaven, and again with God, where he's residing, yes, he's walking with God. If Abraham is down here on earth. He's not dwelling with God in heaven, and God is not dwelling on earth with him. He is walking before the Lord, as in the Lord is observing him and watching him from a distance, kind of to what you're saying, this idea that he's going somewhat alone. He is. 
Well, the, I mean, you have to assume that he's going with it somewhat alone because, again, even remember, basically, God with God with Noah is telling him exactly kind of what's going to happen. Here's what you got to do. Here's what it is. Build this thing. We're going to make some covenants together. You know what I mean? This is going to be crazy, but here's it, it's almost like here's the plan. And with Abraham... So much of that in the scriptures, we realize Abraham may have not known exactly what he was being commanded to do when he was being sent up to sacrifice his son. Abraham had to had to be faithful without God there right next to him, reassuring him through every step of the process. Because again, like the story that we're going to talk about of, of Abraham and Isaac— I don't know. I'm just saying I think that there's more to that story even too than God said, hey, you've got to go sacrifice your son. And everybody was just cool with it and just went up to the mountain and was like, uh, okay. And even if that was what he was commanded to do in the first place or if, or if this was something that he maybe understood because of the, what happened with him and his father. But then the trauma of what happens even after that, it talks about like parallel timelines this is when his wife, Sarah, who probably at least at some point figures out what's going on, eventually dies, whether because of this or not. Like, it's it's a pretty crazy it's not coincidence. You know what I mean? There's, there's, there's a lot of people who suffer or are affected real. Can you imagine if this is... Can you imagine if she figured out what was going on somewhere along the line and didn't understand, obviously, with the purpose, too, and was like, wait, is my husband going to kill our only son that we've waited 80-whatever years for at this point? Like, the the traumatic experience that that would have been that could absolutely have led to complications that could have led to her death, that happens. There, there's, there's a lot of scholars that that suspect that Isaac was 37 years old at the time that he was offered as an offering simply because his mom dies 37 years after his birth, and they attribute him going up and, and, and the sacrifice, the idea is what draw, bright, brings her down to the grave. And you look at a very similar thing with Lehi and Sariah. When they send Nephi back to Jerusalem— and it says that her, she was she was mourning their death, and and it almost killed her. The thought that they were, and there's some good parallels there because again, it's a three days journey from Jerusalem, just like it's a three days journey for them to get to Moriah, where they where they do this sacrifice. There are consequences, impact on on people far outside of just Abraham and Isaac hanging out on a mountain together. And and just to sum up, the, then the, at least the thought then would be, I think it speaks to. If, if we are to assume that this language is deliberate, and it might not even be, but if it is deliberate in with God or before God, I think that there's something to be said for Abraham even after all of this is going down and realizing that there's infinitely like more repercussions than just the angel being like, okay, don't do that. Oh, okay, cool. I guess everybody's cool now. Well, no, that's not the way that that story ends. Right? Right. But that even after that, Abraham still finds it within himself to get up and continue. Through all of these things, he's willing to get up, even not not necessarily having God physically right there hanging out with him to be like, hey, look, we're here together. It's cool. It's all part of the plan. 
instead having to rely on the Spirit, instead of having to rely on, and obviously still communication with God, but still being able to to walk before God in faith through all of through all of just the insanity that happens and has happened through his entire life. Great insight, and, and it's impressive that he does. He does uh, to paraphrase what it says in Job, right? He does not blame God and die. He does not stop believing despite the test, the challenge, and it's it's summed up maybe a little bit quicker when you get to Jacob with his wrestle with God, and you just kind of glance over that wrestling with God. But in Abraham, that wrestle is drawn out much more significantly, and there is something to sometimes the greatest temptations, the greatest tests that we have to go through aren't because Satan is asking us to make clearly a wrong choice in our life. It's rather God proving us. It's rather God requiring difficult things from us and wondering, are we still going to believe after going through what we're going to have to go through? Do we still turn to him? Do we still have faith? Do we still walk before him? Or or do we need someone to... I, I, I don't know. It's an, it's an excellent question. And Abraham, more than anything, I think, is the prime example of faith. I don't, I don't know if that's quite what you were... That's exactly what I... That's, that's at least what I'm proposing. That's at least what I'm suggesting could possibly be a reason. I love the insight. And to, to answer something that you had mentioned a little bit earlier, when you said... I don't know if the language is deliberate or here. Hopefully, by the end of this episode, we all realize that the language here is extremely deliberate. There, there is a lot going on here. When he, when he says, going back to, to Abraham walking before God, so this is chapter 17, verse 1, and when Abraham was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. That's going to be important. We'll circle back to that. Walk before me. So lifne instead of et. He's saying walk before me, as you've pointed out, and be thou perfect. Mm. And so when I, when I looked at this walk, I went to the Hebrew, and, and the word walk is halach, which, which means to walk. But this isn't halach. This is heath halach, and, and heath halach, the, the heath payel, is a verb form in Hebrew, and it's a reflexive form, and, and you use it like dress yourself, feed yourself. When you're doing action to yourself, that, that, that's a reflexive. So when he says, he's not, he's not saying go walk, he says go walk yourself, kind of almost pointing back to what you're saying, Nate, and, and it's not used extremely common throughout the Bible. It is used when referencing Enoch. He's heath halaking with the Lord. Okay. Um, it is used with, with Noah. I believe it's used with Mo- Moses, this idea of heath halach. But maybe the, the most interesting place is when it's used in the Garden of Eden. It says, and Adam heard the voice of the Lord heath halach, walking. He heard the voice of the Lord walking. That should disturb us more than it does. We, we just glance over this and, and don't really put much attention to it. Voices don't walk. So how does he hear the voice of the Lord walking? walking? Itself. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. 
if he heard the if he heard the Lord walking in the garden, yes. and then calling out, yes. that's one thing. But he hears the voice of the Lord, and so in this case, it's not walking, but this reflexive idea of going back and forth, or or th- th- this action. It, it's he hears the voice of the Lord filling the garden, and and it fills the garden. And it's really cool. I was, I was reading. I was reading. I can't remember who it was. I'm sorry. He was interpreting this, and he gives us an interesting peek into the translation. If you have a, if you have questions or want me to follow up, I can, I can, I can shoot back an email or a post or whatever. But his interpretation of this is fascinating because the he says the reason why the voice of the Lord fills the garden, and this is very profound, is because the first person kicked out of the garden was not Adam and Eve. It was God. He walked with Adam in the cool of the day, but when Adam had transgressed, mm, he could no longer be he in the could no longer be in the presence of God. Wow. Whoa. So the voice of the Lord fills the garden. It goes back and forth. This reflexive voice is filling it saying Adam. And the way he interprets this when he says kara to call out he, there's a there's another version that says to cry out. And so the way he reads this is fascinating. It says, the voice of the Lord filled the garden and God wept. And instead of saying, Adam, where art thou? He interprets it, Adam, why? Why, why art thou? <laughs> oh, man, that's heavy. Yeah. Why did you do this? I can't be with you anymore. And it's the voice of the Lord that's talking to them because God can no longer walk in their presence. So when we, when we see this return, we've talked about the redemptive story of Enoch going back into the garden, if you will, this idea of paradise, seeking paradise, returning, this restoration, this atonement. We see that with Noah. This is what we're going to be seeing with Abraham because you look at this verse Going back to verse 1, and when Abram was 90 years old and 9, the Lord appeared to Abram. And he is commanded to walk in his presence. This is restoration. This is back to the Garden of Eden. What kind of man was Abram that God could be with him again? That's, That's the the, the the purpose of this. But when you look at walking and this heath halach, what, what does it mean to to walk yourself, to go the way of the Lord? And and as I was thinking about this, and I think about how Abraham conducted himself in life. Because I think I think when you're talking about doing it to oneself reflexive, I, I think of this idea of conduct yourself. Be thou perfect right? Abram, we, we talked, we've talked about this probably to the point where you're, you guys are going to turn off the podcast if you keep hearing us say this, but one plan was in order to be like God, it meant to take all of the power, to care about yourself, to exalt yourself, where the other part of the plan was to be a servant, to submit to God's will, to, to learn how to be a God, not take the shortcut. So when you look at Abraham's dealings, he sacrificed, like you said, Nate, not one, 
but two sons. Yes. The first he sacrificed because Sarah, to make her happy. And the second, to please the Lord. And and he is playing the victim in this because all he's well, ever he wanted. he sacrificed a wife in this scenario too. Yes. And all he has ever wanted over and over throughout all of these chapters is children, seed, and, and he is willing to give that up for the people he loves most. He sacrificed two wives in this. <laughs> I mean, I guess the first, I mean. Yes. Okay, sorry. He loses saying, Hagar. He loses saying. Sarah right after yes. this next one. Okay, I'm sorry. He sacrifices I'm just, everything. I'm throwing this in there. I'm just saying, like, this is, this is, the more you actually think through this, it's so heavy. It is. Okay, keep going. And, and he's willing to short himself to please the other person, whoever it is. When, when he goes and fights the kings and, and frees the, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and they try to make this deal, you have the gold and, and we'll take the people, and he says, no, here's some, other, here's some better terms. You take the gold and the people. What's he doing? He's shorting himself. When he's looking to buy a cave to bury his wife, he goes to the Hittites and he asks to buy just the cave. And the Hittite says, I'll sell you not the cave, but the whole field. And Abraham's saying, no, I'm not interested in the whole field. I'm just interested in the cave. And he says, well, the whole field goes with the cave if you're going to do it. And he sells it to him, not for the price of the cave, but for the price of the whole field. And, and there's something going on underlying tones here. If you owned a parcel of land in the Hittite kingdom, then you owned allegiance to the king. You had to pay the taxes. You had to pay the service, the duties, whatever it was, you're obligated to serve the king. If you are leasing or bought a portion from someone who's a landowner, so you're just taking a portion of the field, you're not under those obligations. So this guy, it's not, it's not this, this super generous back and forth. This guy is trying to get out of his obligations and put them on Abraham because he needs some place. This guy who wants to be a nation, who wants to have his own land, doesn't even have a parcel of land to bury his wife. And yet he subjects himself to the worst terms to, to, to be overly fair to the other party. In everything Abraham does, he doesn't do things to get gain for himself. He does it to short himself. And, and, and the Lord asking for his son, and he's willing to give that which was most precious to him. And, and if you read Abraham's story, there's probably another five or six examples I'm not even mentioning, and I, and I, I can't even... I'm I'm leaving out and not doing justice to the story, but he is walking before God by doing this. Can I just jump in real quick here? Please do. Because what you're saying, I think, really highlights what we've been talking about all year, and especially this, but again, that's, that's the difference between even like Adam and Eve and Abraham in this circumstance, which is one of those... One, one. Uh, let's let's just say, let's just combine Adam and Eve for the sake of this conversation. One of those two chose what they thought was going to be the easy way, and what happened? 
Was it? Did it end up being the easy way? Yeah, no, by the sweat of thy brow. That's exactly right. And and this is, again, just another, I just want to throw this back in there because, and I, by the way, I don't mind bringing this up every time because this is the lesson. I, I literally just had a conversation about this with a friend while we were working on um, a record this week, which is the life lesson is anything worth having and worth value long-term requires sacrifice sacrifice and and it's and it's funny because then again in the garden the plan was or or not the plan but the the temptation to eve was hey this will help you become like god well guess what this is coming from a person that clearly doesn't know how to actually become like god or maybe he does and is just continually throughout this point in his existence trying to tweak that okay god i want to just have you give me your power no and and actually now i'm going to kick you out of here Hey, Eve, trust me, this is how you become like God. No, that's wrong, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? And by the way, and by the way, it did the exact opposite at the time of get them closer to God. To your point, it alienated, it alienated them. them. The shortcut became the, the, the long, the, absolutely the journey. long, hard road, right? And it's interesting because then you look at the language with Abraham, who from the very beginning was like, nope. This this life is the long, hard road. I accept that, right? And then you look at the language of how he walked before God in this circumstance. You're like, this was a good, good dude. He this was. was a great, great man. And he did it the right way. And I remembered when his shepherds have a dispute with Lot's shepherds. Oh, yeah. And, and oh, this is another great. This is a perfect example. And how does yeah he handles it by saying, "Lot, we're we're family. There's no reason for us to be disputing." Even though he basically saved the dude's life and bailed him out of every bad situation to this saved point, saved him from famine, saved him, brought him into, brought him to where he was. He's raised this kid up, his nephew. Lot, look at here's the land. Everywhere you see, where do you want to go? What's the best land for you? The green land over there, you want it? It's yours. I'll take I'll take the barren land over here, and I'll, and God will make it good for me. He shorts himself to make this thing work, and and when he sees three strangers walking in the heat of the day, and and they're not walking, they actually stop. They're standing and they're looking at him, but they're looking at him from a distance. Because it says that Abraham ran to them. You don't run to someone who's standing right next to you. And they've got to be a little bit ways out, a little, a little bit of a ways out. He runs to them, and and says, "Please come here. I will feed you." It gets. He runs back, and and the the thing is, it says hastens and runs over and over. He runs back to his wife. Please get the bread ready for them. Runs over to the servant. Here's a calf. Will you kill it and cook it and prepare it? Let me go get some water. Let me wash their feet. Let me give them everything I have to make them comfortable and to serve them and to go out of my way to put these strangers first, which he owes nothing to, but he does it. And the Lord validates Abraham and his decisions. One just simply right here in the verse, the fact that it's not the voice of the Lord speaking to Abraham, the fact that the Lord appears to him, one, but two, when God commands Abraham to make a sacrifice to ratify this covenant that he will raise up a nation through 
Isaac, his son, and Abraham cuts these pieces of meat, these animal sacrifices, and he lays them out. And, and it would be real easy if you were just about anybody to, to, to just, you know, I did my part, Lord. What are you, you going to do now? What do you want me to do? But Abraham, throughout the whole day, because the Lord tarries, almost going back to the parable of the ten virgins, right? The Lord takes his time. And Abraham guards the meat to keep the flies and the birds away to protect this because this is going to be holy. So here he is again, being typical Abraham, trying to slight himself. The Lord's late for this appointment. That's okay. He's willing to wait. He's going to do everything he can to make sure that the meat is pristine and special for when the Lord gets there. Now, when the Lord comes, a heavy sleep falls upon Abraham. And when he wakes, what does he see? The Lord himself. And a powerful message to Abraham says, this is why I'm God, and walks through the pieces of meat. The covenant. The covenant. Rather than subjecting to Abraham. Here Abraham is expecting he is the weaker party. He should be subjecting himself to the terms of the covenant that the Lord lays because the Lord is superior. He is God. He is king. The king is not the one that goes through the pieces of meat. It's the vassal. It's the smaller one. It's the the weaker party. And God says, no, I'm God because I always put others first. And he puts Abraham first. And he goes through and subjects himself to the terms of the covenant and says, see, you get it. That's what it means to be a God. Wow. To be willing to put someone else first. Wow. I mean, we're going to talk about this too when we talk about the destruction of um, Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's that's a pretty powerful that's a pretty powerful uh, scripture there. It's uh, the story of Abraham is amazing. And if we go to his appeal to God for kids, I, I find this fascinating, going back to what we talked about with the beginning in, in Genesis. This is Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? Let me pause. When he says, seeing I go childless, the word is not go, it is walk. Halach. And, and so we've seen that word when he's talking about hithhalak, right? Halak has two definitions. One means to walk. So, hey, Lord, what are you going to do seeing that I walk around without a kid? That, that could potentially be what he's referring to here. But this is a play on words. The definition number two for halak is die or perish. So put that in here when he says, Lord God, what wilt thou give me seeing I die childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Here I am about to die. Halach, die. What will you, and you promised me this, but the promise isn't happening. What, what, how are you going to fulfill your promise, God? And as he's referencing death and his, his coming up to, to about to die without having a child, it's interesting how he addresses God. In verse 2 when he says, Lord God. We've talked about this title before. Lord is, he will cause to be. God is Elohim. He is the God, creator of gods. 
But also, as, as we talked about that, the Lord, to cause to be creator, he is the God of creation, of life. And then God, Elohim, as the preserver. So he is making his appeal. Remember how, how God appeared to Moses and said, I am the creator, I am the preserver, and I am the, the destroyer. destroyer. It is interesting that Abraham leaves out the destroyer in he this He leaves title. out the destroyer, right? <laughs> the destroying part is, I am going I to know, die. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Is like, I, think, I think he did a good job of conveniently leaving out the destroyer <laughs> as well. But, and and it's, it's a man coming face to face with death who's making a plea for life. And so he's appealing to the God of life, the God of preservation, God. Will you give me a child? Now look at God's response that we've already read, going back to 17. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am El Shaddai. El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El That was a good episode. Almighty God means El Shaddai is the destroyer. So here he is, a man coming face to face with death, making appeal to the God of life. And in response, God says, I am the God of death, but will grant you life. And he takes that halach, which means to die or perish, and changes the meaning of it to hithalach, meaning to live, to go about, to be alive. You see what he's doing there? Yeah. It's I, to me, it's fascinating. It is. It's awesome. A man coming face to face with death appeals to the God of life and responds, "The God of death yeah. promises life." And and if that's not a sign of uh, just simply thinking of Christ, who was supposed to be the one who brings life, instead comes and dies, that we might live again. That, that death comes from life, and life comes from death. It's, I don't know, it's, it's fascinating to see that play out. In the it's Abraham also fascinating cycle. to consider then to what the Jews were expecting the chosen one and how he was, how the, in their minds he was supposed to come, right? Oh, that's an excellent they, point. They, they kept waiting for the liberator. They kept waiting for the king. They kept waiting for the conqueror. They kept, they kept waiting for the god of death, <laughs> right? <laughs> of their enemies. Uh-huh. To, to come to come and give them life and instead a man born you know what I mean to the most hum, in the most humble of circumstances came and and granted the world life and they didn't recognize him I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because it we can go to that right here if you study the life of Abraham you would know that was the plan I feel like if you've studied everything up to this point you would know that that's the plan but continue. <laughs> I'm just saying it's like every sign points towards Jesus. Well, we talked we talked previously about how Abraham's journey into Egypt is a foreshadow of Israel going to go into Egypt, right? Yes. And then when he goes into Abraham or Abraham, when he goes into Babylon and the Babylonian king also takes his wife, we talk about how the Jews are going to be carried away captive into Babylon. And it's interesting how they fit that into the story because here, God's going to promise Abraham a child, and he's going to promise to Sarah a child. And she says, am I going to conceive? I'm, I'm over 90 years old. I, I can't. This is impossible, right? Which, again, you should be looking for a miraculous birth. But, but going back to the story, who's going to believe 
that Sarah, being, being over 90 years old, who's past menopause, who is now expecting a baby, going into Babylon, the king is going to look at this, this over 90-year-old woman with child and say, that's who I want for my wife. Interesting. That, that doesn't fit. Mm. These, this story is not arranged chrono- chronologically. It's thematically. Because Christ has to come after the Babylonian exile. Isaac has to be born after they come out of Babylon. Abraham's life is telling us that, hey, th- that your people are going to go to Egypt, and there the Pharaoh's going to try to get them to worship Pharaoh instead of God. They're going to come out, and by the way, when they come out, they're going to have to fight. Just like Abraham had to liberate Lot, there's going to be violence in the land of Canaan. They're going to have to fight to create a place in the land. Afterwards, they're going to be promised that a Messiah is going to come. They're going to believe in this Messiah, but they're going to lose hope that that Messiah is ever going to come because it's going to take a long time. It's going to delay itself. The groom is going to be late in coming. And then after it's promised, guess what? Instead of being saved, you're going to go into Babylon, where again, the people are going to be pulled and asked to worship the Babylonian gods. But when you come out of Babylon and you return, after some time, Isaac will be born. But when Isaac's going to be born, you're going to be putting him to death. And that death, by the way, if Abraham's wife represents the church Israel, is going to cause her death or her apostasy. That's right. She's going to go into the wilderness. She's going to disappear, apostasy. And then what's going to happen afterwards? Abraham's going to take another wife and have kids. The Gentiles being brought into Abraham's family. Jeez. His whole life is telling us. Well, doesn't Isaac even reunite? Doesn't Isaac Isaac even is the back... one who brings back yep. Hagar to Abraham. Yep. There's even, there's even, there's even the re- reunion or reconnection there as well. That's, I mean, it's fascinating. And, and going to, so you've turned me on to uh, a podcast, Rabbi Sachs. Jonathan, Jonathan Sachs. Sachs. Oh, he's great. And, and he points out that thematically, as we're talking about the scriptures being arranged and, and Babylon fitting where it does in the timeline of these things, thematically, Isaac dies on that mountain. That's he, right. He's not actually dead, but from a literary standpoint, He's not included in the story when they reunite with the servants coming down from Moriah. Yep. He's not included at the, the funeral service of his mom. He disappears. The death of Isaac is the death of, of Christ. But then he's going to make a return as he takes the gospel to the Gentiles and brings the Gentiles into the fold. If you want to know what's going to happen and how it's going to play out, this, this whole story of Abraham is it. A microcosm. Of, of of God's plan. Will you just, because the thing is like, I got, I mean, I'm getting chills, man, but will you, will you just briefly kind of, I think, I think that by kind of skimming over the literary death of, of Isaac, I don't know, because you and I know what that means because we're fans of, you know, this rabbi, but may, maybe just quickly explain what you mean there. Just really quick. Yeah. Yeah. Isaac doesn't physically die on the mountain. Just like I don't think Sarah, being 90 years old with child, is going to appeal to the Babylonian kings to to have her be their wife all of a sudden. Yes. I think that the story is being told in such a way 
that from from a standpoint of reading the story, it's telling a greater story. But what you're saying is, is in the story, you would think that after this whole thing, Isaac would be playing a huge part. Like Isaac should yes. have been included in the text when you're when you're talking about his mother's death, which, by the way, was probably at least you can assume may have been a result of everything that had just happened before that. You would think that in the text, Isaac would be mentioned. He's not. Yeah, you would think that he would be a big role in yes. coming and greeting the servants. Like, hey, you will not believe what happened to You're me. You're never going to believe. I'm so happy to see you again. <laughs> one of the one of the central characters of the story is missing from that. Also, like like we talked about the reuniting. Um, there's there's I guess the po- the point I'm just saying to, to clarify, Isaac is left out. In the text, in inexplicable ways, if you don't understand the context, Jason, that you're talking about right now, which is, it's deliberate. Very deliberate. But the thing is, is it is interesting, too, though, from, like, even a symbolic standpoint, too, that, like, that that would have been a—I mean, we've talked about Abraham's trauma from this situation. We've talked about Sarah's trauma from this situation— it's also hard to believe that a little part of Isaac may not have died that day too. Yeah. I'm just saying like it's hard it's when you look at the story, I'm just saying to be fair to everybody involved. He lost a brother. Dude, in, in Yes, in he did. Ishmael being sent away. He there's it I'm just saying with with how much even he had to suffer in this in this circumstance or in in these various circumstances, it's inexplicable that he would be left out of the text other than what what you're saying, which is, we know now the context of it. Which, by the way, it's funny because we look at these things and go, "It's right there." And so so many times when I'm listening to a lot of these, you know, I don't listen to a lot, a couple or read through some of these these rabbis, you know, kind of going through the Jewish Jewish belief and and understanding of the Old Testament. I'm like waving my arms in the air, going, "You're almost there!" <laughs> like you know what I mean? <laughs> like you're at the finish line. Just cross it. Like you're literally describing Jesus just crossed the finish line. This is another one of those circumstances where you're like, you've you've brought up fantastic points, Rabbi, about every single part of this story. Just walk right across the finish line. Anyways, it's funny. I get I get a kick out of it every time. Because I literally out loud will say, You're right there. You're right there. Just walk across. Just walk across that finish line, baby. Well, it's almost like they've teed it up for you. Like, here, I, I mean, I've done all the work. You just hit the home run on this. It's cool. Awesome. Let's keep going. And and maybe just a minor mention, we've talked about this so many times. I, I go back to, from a literary stand, Adam and Eve being being heavenly parents, right? You've got their... They had to have had multiple children. They had to have had daughters. How, how else did Cain have children? How else did Abel have yes, children exactly. and Seth? They could not have been the only. And in some texts, it talks about them having 60 kids or 30 kids or who knows how many. He lived 900 years. But from a literary standpoint, having one-third of his children versus the two-thirds of his children, it's like God himself is speaking in the text saying, let me tell you my story. story. Let me tell you what's going on here. It's buried in plain sight. Let me ask you a real quick question. Yeah. We talk a lot about how um, you have, all throughout the Old Testament, you have a type of, um, or a symbol, right, of Christ. 
um, and I think that this again kind of goes because we've talked we talk about Moses right being yeah, being the, the, the infants that are killed yes the, yes exactly so we, Isaac going to be offered well, as a type of Christ yes and we even see yes exactly and we even see you know and again we've talked about Joseph Smith and a lot of other prophets that throughout time kind of representing or showing a type of Christ it is interesting to now continue to kind of go back to what we started the episode with is are we being told that Abraham is almost a type of Heavenly Father? Absolutely. I mean, his name, Avram, Av means father, Ram means exalted. He is the exalted father who is going to offer his son as a sacrifice. I think Abraham fills this role. I think Adam fills this role. I think Noah fills this role. I even think Lehi fills this role. Interesting. And, and maybe, maybe this is a good part to segue as we talk... In, in the Book of Mormon, when you see Lehi leaving Jerusalem and coming to his tent, I, I wrote a whole 19-page paper about one little verse, and my father dwelt in a tent. And, and why is that little verse in there? Why? I mean, of I have, course— I have thoughts, but I don't know if they're right. <laughs> where else is he going to dwell? That's—yeah. Uh, it seems a little redundant. If you're, if you're scribbling on metal plates— do you think you have to tell people that my father dwelt in the tent? The only reason, well, if that's the answer, then I'll totally be fine being wrong. Does it have something to do with the idea that a tent was the traveling temple or the traveling tabernacle for a long time, and it basically is reminding us that God dwells in a temple? Absolutely. Yes! In fact, the Hebrew word, yes! we talk about we talk about deliberate here. The Hebrew word for temple in some instances, is ohel. But can we just be stoked that I knew something? You know a lot of things. I mean, but this one was kind of one of the things there's, I shouldn't know, but come on. All right, I'm just patting myself on the back over here. Continue, continue. <laughs> continue to tell people how I was able to nail this one. Nate, Nate's pretty awesome. Yeah, baby. So the, the, that Hebrew word for temple at times is ohel, and the idea was that God has a permanent residence in heaven, so when he comes to visit his children, he tents among them. Mm. So the house or the structure that they build for him is a, a temporary structure, a temporary house for him to visit, a tent. And it also goes back to the time when you're nomadic. You don't live in solid buildings. You live in tents. So you have a tent that you travel about. And, and if you're going to have God dwell among you, then you have a tent for God. And that becomes this temple. And we form to, to, into stakes to hold down the tent to the ground, to ground the tent. We do. Yeah, I learned that from you, actually, in Doctrine <laughs> and Covenants. I'm not even going to try to take credit for that. But I will say it was during Doctrine and Covenants that I realized why we call stakes stakes, and so I felt like an idiot going, wow, that's pretty obvious, I guess, and it took me 39 years to figure that out, <laughs> but all right. Well, when you talk about some of these Assyrian texts that describe where God lives and how God lives, and they put him at the base of a mountain next to a river of water, and, and you look at the imagery of what Nephi is telling, and I don't mean this to be a whole discussion in the Book of Mormon, but I think it's relevant when we talk about Abraham here. Him dwelling in a tent is significant in the idea that he is almost the god of the tent. The, 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 and that's what the tent or the temple was, was a house of God where God resided. So there's a lot of imagery and sy symbolism here. Abraham, like Lehi, builds an altar right at the side of the tent. 
An altar building is very significant. And you couldn't build an altar just anywhere and go worship and throw up a sacrifice. As soon as the temple's established, you had to offer offerings at the temple. And the altar was at the temple. So here you have a tent connected to an altar. And not just an altar, but do you know what else Abraham has at this site that he is that he is residing with Sarah? Oh, let me think. Let me think. We've got an altar. I mean... Here's a question. Does he have some version of the Ark of the Covenant? I don't know about that. Dang it. I was hoping that was going to be it. All right, keep going. A grove of trees. Yeah, I would have never guessed that. He plants a grove of trees at the site that he builds an altar and pitches his tent. A grove of trees is very important to religious belief in the old days. They would always plant groves and go worship God in these groves. And um, if you go to the early Greek temples, can you picture in your mind what these Greek concrete temples look like? Yes. And and what do they have along the outside, along the sides? Pillars. Pillars, columns. And these columns, these pillars, are shaped like trees. Mm, They're decorated. Interesting. Yes, this idea that the temple is in a grove of trees. Why? Because a temple is supposed to embody Eden, paradise. You're going back into Eden. So having these trees that surround it, there's trees in the Garden of Eden. There's a tree of knowledge. There's a tree of life. And so you take Abraham's tent, and and here's, here's where I think it gets really interesting. When God says that Sarah's going to have a child, she laughs, right? But her comment after she laughs is fascinating. Let me let me turn real quick to it. It's uh, chapter 18. Okay, here we go. It's Abraham 18, verse 11, verse 12. So, verse 12. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying... After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And, and that seems like, I, I, I mean, simple enough. Shall I, here's, here's where it's interesting. Shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And, and that makes it sound like, you know, as you get older, you, you don't have sexual intimacy anymore. Am I going to have intimacy The word here for pleasure, though, if we don't translate it as pleasure and go to the Hebrew, the literal word here is, shall I have Eden also? So here she is in this tent, and she's saying, shall I have Eden? Shall I have the garden? Where is the garden? Eden, the paradise, is with Sarah. I don't know. This... This might get a little bit interesting. Okay. Let's help help me navigate these waters, Nate. All right, I'm going to help you navigate these waters. I might butcher this really bad. Okay. Um, when we talk about deliberate words here, one of the deliberate words is laughing. Zahach. Because Abraham laughs when God says, I'm going to bless you with the child. Which, by the way, wouldn't that be exactly what he asked for from God? Yeah. So and, why would he laugh? And 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 Abraham Abraham says, "Well, I wish you would remember Ishmael too." And God says, "Whoa, whoa, I'll remember Ishmael." And I think Ishmael 
it kind of gets lost in the shuffle on this a little bit because we're focusing so much on Abraham and Isaac. He doesn't get the credit that he's due. And we compare the sacrifice of Ishmael in the Quran, in the Islam faith, they believe that that Ishmael was the sacrifice, the chosen son. And it's interesting, this play, because as Hagar gets sent off by Sarah, it breaks Abraham's heart. God says, I'll take care of him. But Hagar sets Ishmael under a bush tree in the shade and walks off because she does not want to see the child die. It is the end. His death being sent out into the wilderness was just as real as Abraham being asked to sacrifice Isaac at the hand of a knife. And yet at that moment, God intervenes and saves Ishmael too to raise a mighty nation from him. This is not just a sacrifice about one son. It's Abraham sacrificing two sons, which by the way, over 50% of the world's population today either claims Ishmael or Isaac as, as their descendancy in, in the world today, which is incredible. That's fascinating. So so to that story, though, God did basically say, hey, don't worry. I'll take care of, I'll, I'll also take care of Ishmael, too. Yeah. He said, do you want me to read the, the exact words here? Yeah. And God said unto Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also... Of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. But going back in this story, the Lord says, I'm also going to bless you with a son from Sarah. And he he doesn't just laugh. He falls on his face laughing, right? Interesting, okay. So it's a very external, outward motion, and, and a very visible thing. Now, after they've prepared the meal, they've, they've prepared the calf, they've prepared the bread, and, and Abraham has sitted out the, the, the meals, and, and it's very important. He says three for each of the visitors. And there's three two guys with Christ, and, and it almost like a first presidency, and you, and you look at the image of these guys coming and giving him more information, right? There, there's some symbol, symbol, sim, symbolism. There's some symbolism associated with them visiting him at his, his temple, his tent, and, and giving him more information. Anyhow... And, and, and it's also interesting that if Christ is God, it says Lord here, all caps, meaning Jehovah. He's not born yet here on the earth. He's not mortal, but he eats with them. I think that's kind of interesting. Okay. Anyhow, it says deliberately that Sarah is inside the tent. She doesn't come out. So she's veiled by the tent door. And not only is she veiled, but when God says Sarah shall have a child and she laughs, it says here that she laughs within herself. How would we know that Sarah had laughed at all if God didn't call her out? Because she's not visible. She's not outside with them. And when she laughs, she's not like Abraham. She doesn't laugh on the ground, sprawl out, and make a big scene of it. She's quiet. She's subtle. And she laughs within herself so that nobody knows. But God sees, right, the intention of his heart. And, and I think it's interesting as you're talking about man and wife that here you have Abraham in a very outward action, putting out and, and, and expressing himself in an outward motion, whereas Sarah's taking it in. Um, it almost reminds me of Mary as she kept these things within herself, right? She's very okay. quiet and calm. But and, and she says, shall I have Eden or this paradise? So when you look at the temple... There is demarcation of sacred space. 
you have a courtyard outside of the Gentiles. That means anyone from any nation can come in there. Then once you pass past that, you have another courtyard of the Israelites where only Israelites are allowed to pass. And then you have a section where the altar is and only the priest is allowed to pass. And then you go into the physical building itself and you have a holy place. So the, the Levites can, can go around and prepare things and do officiate the work and whatnot. But as you get into the priestly place, and then inside the holy place, you have another room where you have a holy of holies, which is the holiest place. Abraham scurrying about and getting everything done is almost like a Levite doing these outward ordinances, doing all of these things where Sarah inside, veiled in the tent, is almost like a priest in, in, in a more holy spot. But even holier, so if the temple is the holy place, she herself is the holy of holies. Can I throw something out just to think about? Please do. We, again, not to get into too many details, have have part of a temple ceremony where, um, where a veil is used before entering, you know, like the celestial room, right? Yes. There's a, I just, again, like I don't, I just want this to be something that you can chew on. But the thing is, is what I think you did is just fantastically, perfectly illustrate even the sacredness of that part of the ceremony, which is sometimes can be and has been misunderstood. And I've unfortunately seen a lot of people very publicly um, take shots at this part of a temple ceremony as if it's something that's... Um, sexist or if it's something that's that's um that that is some sort of like a weird like women aren't as awesome as men and that's why whatever but like you just said in this story specifically she was veiled while this part of the covenant or ceremony was taking place and i think you perfectly highlighted oh no it's not that it's not that well men get to do this without a veil on their face it's like no 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 the women are very symbolically entering the presence of God. Yes. and Very it, symbolically on such a righteous, holy place, moving into the presence of God. In, and, you, and you just described it in this, and it's like, when we, when, next time you go through the temple, those that are, have gone through the temple, consider that, and, and when, when there's parts of the ceremony that, that are very similar to this. And it's important to note the covenant with God, God knows his people, yada, is the same as a husband knows his wife. Yes. And they keep referring to this covenant relationship as a virgin wife versus ones that don't as a non. It, it, this, this sexual intimacy between husband and wife, and yet it's being played as a covenant relationship between God and his people. And as we talked about the, the, the wedding ritual, when... When the husband went, to, the groom went to the bride's house to negotiate the wedding contract, the dowry, what he's going to pay her, how all the terms, the legal, the contract part. After they've agreed and he goes back to his father's place to prepare a room for the bride, the bride veils her face as a sign that she is in a contractual relationship with the Lord, with the groom, and he is going to come for her. And, and it is this going into the groom... I want you to understand about about the temple ordinances. We look at them as three distinct ordinances, but they are in fact one. 
you were washed and cleaned to go to the next step of the endowment. And the next step of the endowment, you go through the veil to take you to the sealing stage. Ultimately, the capstone of this whole thing is a wedding ceremony to be sealed. And just as Moses and, and Aaron, when, they, when they're talking to Pharaoh and God says, you know what, you will be as God to Aaron and he will be as a prophet. He's temporarily elevated to this position where he is like a God speaking to Aaron so that Aaron can be the prophet, the voice piece. Well, in this case, you've got Sarah. And, and I can see how someone reading this cursorily is, oh, this is sexist. She's left in the temple out of the action. She's not part of it. She's, she's sitting in the tent in the background and God calls her out for laughing when she doesn't say anything to Abraham. But that's not, that's not what's going on here. If she's, if she's filling the role of a high priest, if you will, being in a sacred place, well, when Abraham takes the role of a high priest to go into her in order to have Isaac being born, she's being elevated to the Holy of Holies. And what's in the Holy of Holies? God. The high priest goes into the Holy of Holies to go into the presence of God. She becomes the God. Abraham becomes the high priest in this relationship. She takes a higher stage, a higher role. It's interesting. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, just the symbolism of all of this stuff is mind-blowing. It, it's it's, it's a cool deliberate, story. by the way, too. It's extremely deliberate uh, because, you know, God, God mentioning that she laughs and, and, and laugh in this sense, I believe it, it's interesting. This word only shows up 13 times in the Bible and more than half of them are right here in these stories. And, and it's to rejoice, to, to have joy. I've always wondered pleasure. about that. I've always wondered about that because I think that our natural default instinct is to immediately assume that they were mocking God. I've just, I've never been able to buy fully into that. Yeah. Like, I've never been able to buy fully into, you know, and, and again, there I don't, I don't know for sure, but all I know is that every time you see the, oh, they laughed, I'm just like, oh, man, dude, I laugh every day when my kids do something adorable or when my, or they do something beautiful and sweet or touching. Like, I'm just saying, like, I don't, I don't. I, I'm going to say I just don't personally immediately jump to the conclusion of, oh, because they laughed that they were basically saying, yeah, whatever, God, you can't do that. When you're like, yo, this is exactly what Abraham was praying for. Clearly he had faith that God could do this. Yeah. And like totally off base? No, no. It's, it, it's, it's, in fact, there's proof in chapter 21 that this laughing was not a mockery. It was not a, was not a terrible thing. It was actually a really positive experience. They rejoiced. Abraham is, is on the ground beside himself with joy because it's what he's wanted his whole life. That makes so much more sense to me in context of this story. Yeah, and, and Sarah, they, they, this is joy. If you go to it, if it's not, then why? how do you explain Isaac's name? Um, Luckily, I have no idea. I don't know how to explain his name anyway, so maybe you should do that. Okay. Abraham laughed, Sarah laughed, and when Abraham was born, Isaac, I'm sorry, when Isaac was born, I'm, I'm looking in 21 trying to see where, where they give him his name. Verse 3, and Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. Okay, Isaac means he laughed. So Abraham laughed, 
Sarah laughed, and in the end, he laughed. Who's he? Who's left? Who's left in this relationship, this, this dealings? God. And, and Sarah says, in verse 6, And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. It's rejoice. It's rejoice. I will name him, he rejoiced. So that all that, so, so Abraham laughed, Sarah laughed, Abraham rejoiced, Sarah rejoiced, and now God rejoiced. And, and with this, by the way, just really quick, with the imagery now, like rethink of the imagery of this, like you just mentioned, mm-hmm. with it being rejoice instead of laughing, it paints the most wholesome thing I can possibly think of, right? Yeah. Abraham is just like, yes, right? He's probably on his knees weeping. Yes, he is. Sarah is probably also weeping, but but being, you know what I mean? This Very, was the bane of her. I mean, this caused so much yes. heartache with What a with relief Hagar. this probably was to her and why she probably used the word paradise or Eden within me, right? She's like, this is, like you just said, returning to the presence of God, which is what Eden is, right? Yes. This is what it represents. This is I restoration. Mean, she, this is atonement. This is bringing what their... She, which going. is true. No, 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 I'm sorry. I guess, I, guess the, I guess the idea is is that to her, she probably wasn't... She, she was just rejoicing in a, such a different, wholesome way that's beautiful. But even just saying... I am this is this is as close to returning to the presence of God as you possibly can. I mean that's where her joy was at this point, right? Mm-hmm. And that even when God was born and then when he was born and, and God rejoiced too, you just go how stoked is every single person in this you know and but I just love how each each of them in their own personalities almost rejoice about this. Anyways, I just think it's beautiful. I think it's a beautiful imagery and I think it's a beautiful scene. And if, and if Eden represents paradise or heaven or God's presence, I mean, here you have God walking with them in the cool of the day, surrounded by trees, and, and in the temple itself or the tent, you have, you found Eden. Sarah's found Eden, and she is going to give birth, which is an act of creation. Again, you have Adam and Eve in the roles of Abraham and Sarah, this idea that God is creating life that's going to spring forth from paradise to, to fill the world. Love it. Let's keep going. Now we can contrast all of this joy. Well, just, just last emphasis, verse six, when she says, God hath made me to laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. I think of Isaac's role as the one, the son that's going to be sacrificed, that all that shall hear. And, and the word hear here is Shema, which means to obey, to be obedient that all that will be obedient, to all that will listen to Isaac, to his words, to hear, to hear him, shall rejoice also. This idea that he is this image of Christ, that all that will listen to him will also be able to laugh with Abraham, with Isaac, with God, with Sarah. Awesome. Let's keep going. Okay. We've got to contrast this now with the story of Lot. And it's fascinating. Abraham is found in the door of his tent, when, when after this conversation that Abraham has with these three strangers, he goes with them out towards Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And two of the visitors keep going towards the city. God himself stops and says, shall I hide what I'm going to do to Abraham? Let me tell you, I'm going to destroy those cities. <laughs> and, and by the way, Sodom and Gomorrah is not the name, they, they are not the names of the original cities. Sodom and Gomorrah is like dung pile and, and ash heap. Like it's, it's describing what happened after they were destroyed. But anyhow, he says, I am going to destroy those cities. And he sends the two angels down in to go and, and destroy it, which is why you have two messengers appearing to Lot in the city. Uh, but the Lord stays behind to talk with Abraham. And, and Abraham has this intercessory moment where, where the father becomes the son type kind of idea, right? Where he says, well, will you spare it for 50? Or peradventure, I'm shy five people. Will you still spare it? And it gets down all the way to, to 10. And maybe at this point, Abraham's counting how many people are in Lot's family. And he's like, 10 ought to do it. Will he save the city for 10? And the Lord says, I'll save it for 10. But, but joke's on Abraham not all Lot's family is... Yeah. yeah, some of them are knuckleheads too. Some, some of them don't work. But there's there's some serious contrast to Abraham and Lot. When the two um, angels show up to Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot sits in his at the door, at the gates of, of the city. And, and you've mentioned this in, in our previous talks, Nate. Um, the, the role sitting at the gate of a city is what the elders of the city would do. And, and they sit at the gates to hear cases. They were the judges. So if somebody had a problem, they would bring it to the elders sitting in the gates to hear the trial and, and kind of rule on it, which explains why Abraham's sitting at the door of his tent. If any of his herds people has problems, they come and bring it to Abraham at the door of his tent. And as a judge, he can hear it and help decide it, which is why Abraham brings the issues to Lot. Yeah, yeah we know. Okay. So here you have these two men filling very similar roles, but Lot's doing it for, for an entire city, not just his own people. He's kind of serving on this board. And when the two men come, he doesn't stand up and run to greet them. He waits in the gates until these guys come, and then he says, Hey, come home with me. I insist on it. And they're like, No, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna stay in the street. And the word they use for street, this is important, or at least it will be a little bit later when we get to this in, in Old Testament, is Rahab. Um, and, and does that name sound familiar? Rahab. Rahab. It's the name of the prostitute in the city of Jericho. Oh, interesting. Her name means a broad street, which is a fitting name, unfortunately, for a prostitute. Yes. So they say, nope, we're going to stay out here. And he says, no, I insist, let's, let's come in. But he is not—compare the hospitality. We don't have time to go through all of the details, but compare Abraham with Lot and all of these things. He's not—there's he's, he's not, a difference. There's a, there's a stark contrast, and it's cool that they, they put these two situations right next to each other so that you can contrast the nature of Abraham versus the nature of Lot, who, by the way, was a good guy. And he says, I'm going to destroy the city to Lot. Let's get, get your family and get out. And Lot says, okay, I, I need to go find all my family and, and try to talk them into coming. But he goes to his sons who have married girls in the city, and his sons mock him. And in fact, the word they use is laugh. 
It's funny. I was going to be like, please tell me it's laugh because what an amazing contrast. The contrast of the rejoicing when God talks to them versus the mockery. And and we've been talking about these, the the, the, the imitation, the how close, the it's, it's almost the same. I mean, in this case, the it's same. the same word. And, and here's the same word, but it's to their death rather than to their life. Right? And, and so the angels say, time's up, and grabs them by their hand to take them out of the city, and Lot tarries. So a lot of times we give Lot's wife a hard time for turning back. But, but look at it. In here it says Lot tries to stop because he's got family. Well, he also has a position. He's got. He's established. Yes, he's sitting at the gates as I mean, an this elder. This was the la- This was the. This was right next to the land that he chose when he, choosing land from Abraham. Yes, I mean, it, like this is his. This is I. It's. I mean, I can see why he's tarrying, even though he's wrong. And and in talks we've had, maybe Nate, you want to just sum this up real quick. The the difference between Abraham being a foreigner in a strange land versus someone who integrates into into society. Yeah, I, I, I know we kind of talked about this. I don't remember if we even talked about it last week or not, and if so, I'll keep it super brief. But I do love the imagery of Abraham being so respected even by the Hittites. Like, I'm trying to remember the specific name they used for him, but it was something like a man of God or a son of God or, or basically a God-fearing man, and they respected him for that. He didn't go, he didn't go to try to assimilate himself into these various places as one of just one of the guys right mm-hmm. he he was he was a man convicted he was he was truly he was truly a representative of his god and even when even when it made him stand out like a sore thumb again like in this in it, where we read about it specifically in the negotiation with the hittites where lot on the other hand basically goes his kids literally start integrating with the people of this wicked city, start kind of marrying outside of their faith and, and things like that. He he becomes kind of a prominent figure in in Sodom, right? Or whatever the name of the city was at, at the actual time. It's like he almost he almost kind of assimilates into the even though yeah, he's he's being a good dude and you kinda can, he kind of still found a way to kind of work himself into that environment. And I mean, there's, for me at least, kind of the obvious lesson from that is, is that, um, you you see when when the when basically the the heavenly messengers come in to um, Sodom, and um, basically the dudes from the town are like, hey, we're gonna the dudes from the town are, hey, we're gonna have our way with these guys, and Law's like, no, 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 they're like, yeah, no, we are. And he's like, no, no, no. But it's funny because even then, it's like the guys from the town are like, hey, don't, don't forget, like, like you came kind of, you came into this town to be part of us. Like, don't tell us what to do, you know? Where, where it's like there's such little almost respect for him, even as like a judge in the city. And you go, man, I feel like that. That's a pretty. There's a lot of parallels again. You know what I, I mean? I love too. the contrast with Abraham and Lot, and and the idea that he still tries to placate them by offering his daughters. That's right. Which, by the way, come on, dude. I mean, I know he's a good dude, but what? Get out of here, Lot. 
and and contrasting his lack of his lack of hurry with how Abraham hastens to over and over again to do what the Lord wants him to do and Lot on the other hand is trying to make excuses for not doing what the Lord's asking him to do and his life is on the line he tarries and says no I've, I got to try to talk my sons into coming no you've got to leave well give me a little bit more time to try to no you've got to leave now and then when he goes to leave they tell him flee to the mountains and he says well I, I kind of like that city better can I go to that city instead who does that? Who says, God says, I need you to go here. And you say, yeah, I get you're going to destroy the city, but I'm not, I'm not fit to live on my own. I need to live in another city. So is it okay if I live in this city instead? And, and so they're talking it over and, and God says, fine, just get out of here because the city's going to be destroyed. And, and you have this weird story of Lot's wife turning around and getting turned to a pillar of salt, a pillar of salt, and you're like, why? That, that seems super harsh. And, and when I read that and I go to the Hebrew and I read it, it's not that she turned around, it's that she tarried behind him. She stayed behind him. She stayed back. It was too hard for her to leave to where she stalled and, and stayed there. And I don't think they necessarily targeted her. I think the whole city was turned, turned to a, a pile. pile. <laughs> yes. If you have an, a, a volcanic eruption similar to Vesuvius and, and the, the, what's the? Yeah, that was Pompeii. Pompeii, thank you. Which, which is cool. They found fast food restaurants in Pompeii perfectly I know, preferred. That actually, with, I saw that article and I was like, this is dope. <laughs> it is pretty cool. But you had this pyroclastic flow of ash just roll down through there super fast that just vaporized it turned everybody everyone. into a pile it turned the city into a pile of salt it turned the, the city into a pile of salt and and the word salt here is is dust ash, ash. yeah that's what happened it, she got vaporized not not necessarily because god said hey you turn around you die but because she stayed back and the natural consequence of this thing going off they weren't quick to obey the Lord. They always thought they had more time. And I, I take this back to uh, the Book of Mormon puts it so well when it says, do not procrastinate the day of your repentance. And it's cool. When God finishes speaking with Abraham, the word they use when it says, and Abraham turned back to his tent, shuv, repent. He repented back to his tent. It's kind of interesting they use that. He hastened to repent. He hastened to do what the Lord wanted. He hastened even at his own disadvantage to do things where Lot is seeking his own advantage. And, and they're tearing and they're taking their time and they're trying to negotiate better terms with the Lord for themselves rather than trying to negotiate better terms for the Lord or for everyone else. Which, by the way, knowing that it's so much deeper and more profound of an actual lesson to learn from this story than kind of the superficial version that you know what i mean that is kind of like weird god hates every little harsh. act of disobedience yeah, and he'll that's strike the thing, you yeah, dead that's if you the don't thing is it's like well the story means that it's like if you look back at like and and have like you know a hard time leaving your old habits behind god's gonna just turn you into a pile of salt and you're like bro that doesn't even make any sense it really doesn't you're like you're like no, if that's the story, it's like, man, she did a hard thing getting away from something. You know what I mean? Like, give her a break. Well, and uh, give her a chance to actually like do something really, really, really hard that that is new and whatever. And so it's it's it, I've 
again, there's so many of these stories that I've always had such a hard time in the Old Testament with because they just are the the lessons that we're supposed to be thinking that we're taking from them are always so sideways that it's like, man, I don't I don't know if that's really what we're supposed to be taking away from the story. This, on the other hand, makes so much more practical sense. No, she wouldn't leave. She stayed behind. She stayed. That's a totally different outcome. And by the way, that's not even God being like, well, now I'm going to turn you into a pillar of salt because you turn around and look. That's God saying, I told you to leave. How many times does God <laughs> try to save us? That's what I'm saying. And we tarry. And that's God going, oh, this is such a bummer, but I told you to leave. Please don't procrastinate. I'm trying to I'm save you. I'm trying to you. get you out of here. Like it's 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 like, sorry, well, this is now the natural consequences of your decision and not necessarily a punishment from God for you having a moment of weakness, being like, oh man, like there were some fun things about my old life, even though they weren't right. It's like, that's such a weird, it's just such an incorrect principle, right? And mm-hmm. this makes so much more sense. And like you said, God's being merciful saying, get out, get out, get out, get out. You really don't want to know what the natural consequences of your own decisions are going to be. Yeah. Okay. I'm really, I'm glad we put that in there. All right. First of all, we're totally out of time, but I'm not stopping <laughs> until you're stopping, Jason. So let's I, keep going. You know, this this might be a good place to stop. Would you get to, I, I don't know if we'll cover everything next week. I think we have a little bit more Abraham, but maybe this story with, uh, with Lot. Is a good and, place and to the end. actual lesson to take from this for any of you listening to this that are going to be going to Sunday school in the next couple weeks. Is it? Oh wait, is it? Is it not Sunday school this week? No, I don't know. Two, it's not for us. Weeks. Please do your part. This is the, we 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 don't ask a lot of you as listeners. We we ask you to help maybe write some letters to this one app to get our to get our podcast at least on like their resource app. That's like the only thing we really ask. This may be one of those other ones, which is in your classes, please help correct the the thinking of the class. If somebody raises their hand and says, or the teacher, whoever it is, says, well, this is a story about Lot's wife not being able to turn from her sin. And so God turns her into a pillar of salt. Please raise your hand and say, hey, there actually is a little bit more context to this story that's, that describes the nature of God that we know way better. You see where I'm going with this. That's all we're going to ask. Is that fair, Jason? That's a fair, that's a fair ask. Okay. Anyways. And, and to me, this story, for whatever reason, I can't get out of this rut, this idea that how can you be like God if you continue to put yourself first, if you continue to say my will in front of your will? Abraham got there. The Lord appeared to him. You'll notice not all three messengers went in to go get Lot. The Lord tarried with Abraham, and only the men went to get Lot. See, you're going to sound like the smartest person in your Sunday school classes. What Jason just said right there, use that, and people will be like, you should be teaching the gospel doctrine class. (laughs) He's just giving giving you the hits right now. What he just said may be the coolest part of this whole episode. Jason, that was awesome. And, and you know what's crazy? Tell me. The, what's the last, crazy? The last two chapters that we, we we haven't really hit, the death of Sarah and Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice. And you would think that Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice would be the meat of this lesson, and, and yet we've gone, I mean, we've talked about it in, in the general sense, but we haven't even... But I feel like everybody kind of knows that story. 
I think so. And I feel like everybody can see that's that's luckily one of the more obvious, not obvious, but a little more plain symbolisms and metaphors and types, right? Yes. Um the 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 one the last thing I want to throw in real quick, the other one where Isaac is left out of the literary context was when his dad was sending the servant to go find him a bride, to go find him a wife. Oh yeah, and when not- Abraham, when Abraham, like Isaac's not even mentioned as he, even being a part of this conversation, but it is interesting because it is though, also though reflective of how beautiful and amazing of a man that Abraham was. Is even after all of this tragedy and all of these things, he is he knows what he's supposed to be doing, and he is he's already back on the job. Even though Isaac's totally, for some strange reason, left totally out of that that story, which it seems like a weird one to be to be not involved in, is is the conversation of going and finding your wife. <laughs> yeah, and and Abraham, maybe maybe I'll just two or three quick thoughts and I'll end it because I know we're we're running late. Abraham is so much more than a tragic hero. He doesn't just resign himself to the death of Isaac and and give it up and thrust the knife in knowing that he is suffering and God's going to reward him. He's much more than that because he still believes in God. He still has faith that God said through Isaac he was going to have a great nation. Even if it meant killing Isaac, somehow the impossible was going to happen and for Abraham to believe God, even though it seemed physically impossible, he still believed. And that's what made him great. The faith of Abraham is, it's not about being a tragic hero. It's not about suffering. It's about believing when it believing becomes impossible. impossible. I love it, Jason. Great job this week. You, I, I'm so happy that we get to just let you loose in your playground of the Old Testament. Love, it's been a party. I love, I love the Old what Testament. Are we, what are we talking about next week? Um, we'll are talk we get- about Isaac a little bit more, and maybe we'll pick into some more things here that that, that we could have hit okay. that we didn't hit. I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll keep going on with uh, with Isaac. Um, maybe we'll talk about when you put your hand under the thigh and, and promise. Uh, I've been waiting for this episode because I have thoughts. Good. I have thoughts on this. Yeah. I, I, I'm not even going to hint at them, but I will just say I have thoughts on that one. I'm excited. All right. Until next week. See ya. See ya.